Well, it has been quite a year like no other, but in, in many ways it has been a year very much like the last few, but with further and more dramatic developments that have developed through the year. And so we're not really tonight going to look at um, a couple of the news stories that have been big news stories that you've read a lot about, uh, particularly the pandemic. We're not going to hardly touch on that at all, except for just some of the implications of where that might be taking things. Uh, also, the United States elections that seems to be in the news all the time. We won't really deal with that much at all, but we will be looking particularly at Israel and where things have been going this year in the Middle East. Now, giving this talk now, the thing that sticks in my mind more than anything is that we stood here and did a talk last year, almost the same time last year. I think it was the 11th or 12th of December last year, which was the day before the election in England, which ultimately determined the outcome of Brexit. So when we think that that's where we were this time last year, when we, when we presented these events, it's quite incredible to think what has happened in the meantime. And uh, we'll particularly look at uh, the, the events in the Middle East. Things are really, really, I think, really now converging right on the Middle East and on Israel and the countries surrounding Israel. And I always like to summarise in a, in a verse how, how our response is to these things. Um, this, you can't go past this one. The Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so that was uh, spoken to the people of his day. And so how relevant those words are for our day. And how, how many of our brothers and sisters of, of our respective ecclesias and, and of, our, of, of, of our families who have longed to see the very events that are actually happening today that we can see with our eyes, yet we are actually seeing those events. And we'll have a bit of a look at them tonight in, uh, in a very brief summary, really. Now, in relation to the pandemic, um, I think so much has been said, it's probably information overload, but I think what one of the biggest impacts of the pandemic, really, has been uh, a, a, a huge increase in world debt, which was already there in the first place. It's like the pandemic has sped up the process. And there's just, I just grabbed hold of a very recent headline from the Sydney Morning Herald talking about the United States particularly. Of course, overseas, things are dramatically worse than what they've ever been here. And this is one from a few days ago saying that the United States retail bloodshed has echoes of the Great Depression. And since January, the, the number of uh, bankruptcies and closed businesses has been at a, a record. Never before has so many businesses shut their doors and it's very much reminiscent of what happened during the Great Depression. And while it's too soon to know whether these trends will hold, there's a good chance that the pandemic may unleash a wave of creative destruction on retail, the likes of which has not been seen since the 1930s, says uh, a professor of history at the University of Georgia. And so we've talked in past uh, talks that we've done here on reviews, of, uh, particularly after the Great uh, the, the global financial crisis about how the United States has dramatically gone into debt and all around the world and they just keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and so many economists and experts can see that it can't just continue like that. Uh, yesterday there was a headline in Fortune magazine, a financial uh, news site saying why aren't we in a Great Depression? We should be in a Great Depression but they're just borrowing gigantic amounts of money to prop it up. And if you want to uh, watch something interesting, just look up uh, any um, documentary about the Great Depression in 1930, the, the stock market crash of 1929. It's, it's incredible. You think you're actually watching the events that are happening this year. It's amazing. Global debt to hit a record $277 trillion by the year end on pandemic splurge. And that it was Reuters a couple of weeks ago. 
So what we're seeing really is a world that is really without hope. They, they can't find a solution to how, how to deal with their financial crisis. And one of the senators I heard in the United States a couple of weeks ago just admitted, he just said, the fact is the, the debt will never be paid off. It's an unpayable debt. It's impossible to pay it off. So we've just got to do the best we can. And there it is. There's the US total public debt versus GDP. And you can see, if you can see sort of in the middle there, there's the global financial crisis. We thought it was really high at, at $9 trillion. It had been going up quite dramatically since the 90s. But of course, since the global financial crisis, it's gone up dramatically up to $27 trillion. Feels like I only just looked and, and, it was and it was just under 20 trillion, it's now 27 trillion. And this year they've borrowed huge amounts of money at an unprecedented rate. And it appears that they're gonna borrow huge amounts more very shortly. And it's a whole new subject again, but one which is quite fascinating and one where there was a whole Time magazine dedicated to this subject is what they call the Great Reset. And it's something I think you're going to start to hear a lot more about, the Great Reset. And a lot of it is, is to do with trying to fix the, um, the, say, the environment particularly, and it's going to cost trillions of dollars, multiples of trillions of dollars to, to even touch the surface. And that, tri that debt's just going to go absolutely sky high through the roof. They want to reset the world's finances. The wor and, and there's all sorts of theories about it, positive, negative and indifferent. But something we're going to hear a lot more about, I think, in the new year is the Great Reset. But let's go back to where we were really this time last year. We were only a, a day before the election in Great Britain. And ultimately the result of that election was that on the 31st of January 2020, Great Britain left the European Union. And I can say, uh, for me, I can, I can just think, I remember as a child my parents talking about the fact that this would happen, my grandparents. I can remember them talking about the day when Britain would leave the European Union. And here I am more than 40 years later, actually seeing it with my eyes, seeing it actually happen. And I've got a little video here that shows you, um, takes you, us from where we were when we gave uh, our review last year through to the 31st of uh, um, 31st of January when Brexit actually went through. Here's just a little clip that Josh was put together. Our exit poll is suggesting that there will be a conservative majority when all the votes are counted after this election. I do not think it vainglorious or implausible to say that a new golden age for this United Kingdom is now within reach and, and in spite of the scoffing, in spite of the negativity, in spite of the scepticism that you will hear from the other side, we will work flat out to deliver it. The government's priority is to deliver the United Kingdom's departure from the European Union on the 31st of January. My ministers will bring forward legislation to ensure the United Kingdom's exit on that date and to make the most of the opportunities that this brings for all the people of the United Kingdom. It's taken 1,275 days since Britain voted to leave the EU to get this. The eyes to the right, 358. The nose to the left, 234. government win on Brexit. Four attempts and two general elections later, MPs have finally approved a Brexit blueprint. The world of tomorrow is a world of empires in which we European and you British can only defend your interest, your way of life by doing it together in a European framework and in the European Union. We all know that the only way out of this crisis is a new transfer of powers to the European Union and to the European institutions.
so if we had any doubt about whether prophecy was being fulfilled, whether really things were moving ahead, all those doubts were dispelled when Britain finally left the European Union on the 31st. Because God is preparing the nations to accept Christ when he comes. And there's some of the headlines that we saw in December and January. Of course, Britain thinks that they did it out of their own power and their own strength. And, if, and, and Boris Johnson said in the Parliament, a new golden age is coming for Britain. It's not a golden age that they've created. Just look at what's happened this year. They're in massive debt. They're in huge trouble. The golden age is the kingdom of God. And I believe that the big thing about Britain leaving the EU is not just the fact that Britain will be separate prophetically because of Ezekiel 38, where Britain and, the, and, and Sheba and Dedan and, and the young lions are not with the invader. The purpose of Brexit and the young lions being separate from Europe is that they, these nations will be ready to accept the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the saints to establish the kingdom. So while Europe rages in rebellion against Christ and the saints, the kingdom is being spread to the far-flung places of the world, to the isles, to the coastlands, to places that will be receptive to Christ. And it's beautiful when you think of that. And we're going to see that Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states are involved with that because Sheba, Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish are often mentioned together in the context of the kingdom. But there are scriptures that indicate that Great Britain must be humbled first. And I think this year they're certainly being humbled. It's not all... You can see the confidence of Boris Johnson there. He thinks he did it himself. It was, it, it was a miracle that it happened. It wasn't in his strength. And, of course, only a, a week or two later, he, he, he ended up in hospital and almost died from COVID. See, God's working with the nations. And in 1848, Brother Thomas said in Elpis Israel that Europe will be in a united dominion, but Britain cannot be included among them. That is all, that's just a foolish statement in the context of the world in which he lived. Britain wasn't even united. Britain was so fragmented into, into dozens of little states, let alone Britain not even being among them. They didn't even join them. A few other quotes. Here's one from Milestones in 1989. Brother Pierce says, It should be obvious that Britain biblically has no place in Europe when Christ comes. And again, it, it just didn't seem like that at the time. Going back a little bit of time, in 1968 in the Shield magazine, which um, my grandfather wrote on Revelation 17 in that magazine before I was born, and he said that Britain, we feel, will not be permitted by God to join these ten, or if she does, it will be but for a brief time, after which she will retire sadder, but wiser, and perhaps much poorer. And when I, when I was a child, he used to say, they will exit Europe a much sorrier nation. And here we are decades later, and have they ever exited Europe a much sorrier nation? Paul Billington in 1990 said, the timing we do not know, but the author believes that Bible prophecy requires Britain's ultimate separation from Catholic Europe. On that basis... He, that's Brother Billington, has no hesitation in saying that Britain's eventual exit from Europe is a certainty. But see, things take time, don't they? It's taken another 30 years from that. And so they did. And this year has been a, t a period of time where there's been a lot of division and, and, and distrust and difficulty between Europe and Britain. The EU, a few months ago, was suing Britain for a breach of the Brexit Treaty. We don't know if there'll be a no-deal Brexit or whether there will be a deal, either a moderate deal or a less moderate deal. And just like when we were here a, week, uh, a year ago, we're not going to predict when anything's going to happen or how it's going to happen, except we know that Britain will be separate from Europe. And there's just a few headlines from the last few weeks. A no-deal Brexit would be worse for the UK economy than COVID-19, says the Bank of England Governor. 
Britain's final Brexit choice could prolong the worst recession in 300 years. No vaccine for Brexit. Britain's car makers beg for a deal with the EU. And uh, who knows where that's going to go in the next few weeks, but it's dramatic. There's a split between Britain and Europe. And um, that headline was from, I think, yesterday. The UK and the EU have agreed to a last throw of the dice in Brexit trade deal talks. And that's happening right now because the, to, to leave Babylon is very difficult and they don't want to let Britain go, just like Pharaoh didn't want to leave, didn't want let the Jewish people go. And Boris Johnson said a couple of years ago, he said, let my people go. It's very much like that. Roman Europe's called that great city which is called Sodom and Egypt. You try and leave that system, it's very difficult to leave that system. But I think what we're going to see, and this could be something to do with why Australia, and, and I'm only speculating there a bit, that why Australia seems to have fallen out with China, maybe Australia will need to look for closer links with the Commonwealth nations. We know that there will be more links with the Commonwealth nations with Britain at the time of the end. So maybe that's a part of the process. I think it'll just be proven in time. But here's a few headlines here, very recent ones, really. Brexit Britain could form a new superpower alliance with Australia, Canada and New Zealand. And this Kanzuk alliance idea has made waves with the Indo-Pacific in flux. So there's developments happening that are showing that Britain are looking for different markets and they're looking for those markets with the Commonwealth nations. And ultimately, this is for the purpose of the link of Tarshish and Sheba with the young lions to help Christ in the establishment of the kingdom. Now, here's something that's closely linked with that, but it brings it to the Middle East. It's what we call the, the emerging, but it's really more than emerging now. It's, it's, it's really becoming seen very clearly. The Anglo-American Arab-Israel Alliance. And you can see how the, the four years in which Donald Trump has been in, how that things have dramatically turned in, in a particular direction. And maybe it, it appears that his time is done, at least for now. That the work has been done, it, it's been triggered, where Arab nations are now joining with Israel and there's peace agreements. He also recognised, uh, he took the... Took the, um, the uh, the embassy to, to, to Jerusalem and also recognise the Golan Heights. But we know from scripture that the Arab peoples, and what by Arabs I mean the true Arabs uh, related to Abraham, particularly seen in the southern countries, will be with Israel and will acknowledge Christ when he comes. Isaiah 21 is a burden upon Arabia. In the forest of Arabia shall ye lodge. Now there's no forest in Arabia now. But in the kingdom, there will be a forest in Arabia because they will be blessed for supporting Israel. The inhabitants of the land of Tema brought water to him that was thirsty. That's the Jews when they escaped from Armageddon. They received with their bread him that fled, for they fled from swords, from the drawn sword and from the bent bow and from the grievousness of war. So the Arabs on the Arabian Peninsula will be there to help the Jews when they flee from the Battle of Armageddon. And the events we've seen in the last year or two is there to prepare those nations. What a beautiful thing that is. Psalm 72, a classic psalm about the kingdom. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. So all kings will, but first of all, there's Tarshish, and the coastlands of the world, the isles, and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. That's a, that's a story of the kingdom. Isaiah 60, another one about the kingdom. The dromedies of Midian and Ephah, and all they from Sheba shall come. They'll bring gold and incense and will show forth the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together up, uh, unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar and will glorify, I will glorify the house of my glory. So... We expect to see these Arabs related to Abraham, related to the Jewish people, who will be there to accept Christ when he comes. 
And what an amazing thing that this year, the peace agreements that were made this year, of all things, they called them the Abraham Accords. There's a few headlines. It started with the UAE peace agreement, which was the first Arab-Israeli peace agreement in 26 years. It just seemed to come out of the blue, and they called it the Abraham Accords. And of course, we know that the gospel is intimately connected with the salvation of Israel. And these events are all to do with the preparation for the salvation of Israel. When the angel came to Mary, Luke chapter 1, didn't say much. The angel didn't say much at all, but the angel said, The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Luke 1, when Zacharias, through inspiration, spoke of the purpose with Jesus Christ and his son, and, and Zacharias' son, John the Baptist, preparing the way, quoting from Micah, quoting from various Old Testament prophets, he said, he, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And, and we, we could quote all night the scriptures that refer to Israel and their relevance to, to, to the gospel message. And so uh, the headline was there in the Australian, Trump's play for peace in the Middle East, a triumph. And Greg Sheridan uh, very respected uh, writer in The Australian, he's the foreign editor, he said, in the entire modern history of the Middle East, since Israel established its independence in 1948, only four Arab governments have recognised the Jewish state and signed peace treaties with it. Two of these, the UAE and Bahrain, did so this week. It upends decades of stale but ubiquitous diplomatic formulations. It normalises Israel, normalises the Middle East and is the most promising regional development in decades. The Muslim and Jewish hands of friendship extended in this process magnificently transcend one of the oldest and most bitter religious, cultural and political conflicts the world has known. These developments would not have taken place without at least the tacit approval of Saudi Arabia. And another writer in America says that a geopolitical earthquake just hit the Middle East in August. This was August 13. And this is a writer who's not, not a fan of Donald Trump at all, but he says the Israel-UAE deal will be felt throughout the region. For once, I'm going to agree with President Trump in his use of his favourite adjective, huge. The agreement brokered by the Trump administration for the UAE to establish full normalisation of relations with Israel in return for the Jewish state foregoing for now any annexation of the West Bank was exactly what Trump said in his tweet, a huge breakthrough. Just go down the scorecard and you will see how this deal affects every major party in the region. It's a geopolitical earthquake. And only very recently it was reported across many media outlets and even other politicians in Israel that Netanyahu held a secret meeting with the Saudi Crown Prince. I think Jared Kushner went there last week to meet with the Saudis. And Newsweek says... Uh, some comments here. It says, It may be hard to see at first blush, but the directive of the sanctification of God's name and the historic significance and impact of the Abraham Accords are intimately related. It's an interesting way to describe it. This is in Newsweek, an opinion, of course. The Accords are already showing their potential as a unifying force in the Middle East and are already being hailed as a major step in paving the way for peace agreements between Israel and other Arab nations. Importantly, and it says in the Australian, analysts and diplomats believe the Bahraini agreement is a proxy for Saudi Arabia, which has huge sway over its smaller neighbour. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has suggested that the Palestinian cause should not stand in the way of some ties with Israel. And if we want to go back um, about three years, here was a headline that really summarised it all. Iran has driven Israel and the Gulf states together in the Washington Post and it said that this has been quietly happening since 2002 where several Sunni Arab rulers have shifted away from their long-standing hostility toward Israel to focus on the threat posed by Iran. For the Gulf states, 
or the Gulf Arabs, Israel is, a, is the closest military power to hen, help defend against Isra, Iran's might. Without Israeli support, the Gulf Arabs could not withstand a direct Iranian assault. Isn't it amazing the way God works to bring this alignment together like we read tonight in Daniel 11? Now, I'll, read, uh, I'll, I'll play you this little video that goes for a few minutes of the announcement about the Abraham Accords. And I think the most phenomenal section of this little video clip is the, is the, the Jewish ambassador and his description about why they called it the Abraham Accords. This was from in August. Moments ago, I hosted a very special call with two friends, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed of the United Arab Emirates, where they agreed to finalize a historical peace agreement. Everybody said this would be impossible. And as you know, Mohammed is one of the great leaders of the Middle East. After 49 years, Israel and the United Arab Emirates will fully normalize their diplomatic relations. They will exchange embassies and ambassadors and begin cooperation across the board and on a broad range of areas, including tourism, education, healthcare, trade, and security. This is a truly historic moment, not since the Israel-Jordan peace treaty was signed more than 25 years ago has so much progress been made towards peace in the Middle East. By uniting two of America's closest and most capable partners in the region, something which said could not be done, this deal is a significant step towards building a more peaceful, secure, and prosperous Middle East. Now that the ice has been broken, I expect more Arab and Muslim countries will follow the United Arab Emirates lead and i want to just thank them for being it's not surprising knowing mohammed so well it's not surprising they are in that lead position and normalize relations with israel we are already discussing this with other nations very powerful very good nations and people that want to see peace in the middle east so you will probably see others of these but this is the first one in more than 25 years this deal will allow much greater access to Muslims from throughout the world to visit the many historic sites in Israel, which the Muslims want to see very badly and have wanted to see for many, many decades, and to peacefully pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is a very special place for them. My first trip as president was to Saudi Arabia in May of 2017 in my speech to the assembled leaders of 54 Muslim countries. Every single one was by their leader, their number one leader. It was an amazing, really an incredible event, a very important event. I made clear that the problems of the Middle East can only be solved when people of all faiths come together to fight Islamic extremism and pursue economic opportunity for people of all faiths. And when you look at what's happening, you're seeing a lot of progress is being made that nobody thought could possibly be made. And things are happening that I can't talk about, but they're extremely positive. I want to thank the leaders of Israel and the UAE for their courage and for their leadership to forge this tremendous agreement. It will be known as the Abraham Accord. And I'd like to ask our ambassador, David Friedman, to please uh, explain why we're doing uh, and calling it the Abraham Accord. David? Thank you, Mr. President, and congratulations to you on brokering this historic uh, peace agreement. Abraham, as uh, many of you know, was the father of all three uh, great faiths. Uh, He's referred to as Abraham in the Christian faith, Ibrahim in the Muslim faith, and Avraham in the Jewish faith. And uh, no person uh, better symbolizes uh, the potential for unity among all these three great faiths than Abraham. And that's why this accord has been given that name. It's a great, uh, great thing. I wanted it to be called the Donald J. Trump Accord, <laughs> but I didn't think the press would understand that. So I, I didn't do that. There you go. 
go. Just had to be the Abraham Accords, didn't it? And I really wonder when, this, when at the judgment seat and, and the resurrection, when Abraham is resurrected, whether Abraham will play a very important role in uniting those people together to accept Christ when he comes. It's an incredible thing to think about, isn't it? And so very shortly after that, in, uh, I think it was in September, Trump announced another peace deal, this time between Bahrain and Israel. And again, Bahrain, a very small country, but a very important country and one which is very close to Saudi Arabia. And then in October, there was another peace deal. Now, this is a little bit different because this was with Sudan. Now, Sudan, as we, we may know, Sudan appears to be with, uh, certainly with Russia at the time of the end as a part of the ancient Ethiopia of Daniel 11 and Ezekiel 38. But of course, for the time being, Sudan has gone with this as well, no doubt for its, um, um, the financial benefits that come from this the, and, and from the alliance with the United States. But at the same time as Sudan did this, they were also signing a deal with Vladimir Putin to bring his warships into the oceans of Sudan, just south of Israel. Very interesting. But at the same time, and this is uh, back in July, the headlines were saying that Israel looks like it now, after all, has as much oil as Saudi Arabia. They're saying there may be about 250 billion barrels of oil in oil shale in Israel, similar to the amount in Saudi Arabia, was that the government in, in Israel was told. Now, again, we know how important oil and gas is, and there's been these huge discoveries that have, haven't been discovered for decades. No one thought there was oil and gas there. And suddenly, right at this time, as all the nations seem to be converging in the right way, bang, there it is, suddenly found, including on the Golan Heights. But this is really what we want to look at now because this is the big, the big uh, news story really is the Russian military intervention in Libya and Syria but I, I, we can really extend that to the whole eastern Mediterranean but particularly Libya and of course we know uh, that Syria, Russia went into Syria in September 2015 as, and has expanded its influence in Syria since then. It's been in Libya for a couple of years and has been expanding its influence there. But just a little recap and going on that reading that we looked at tonight. We know at the time of the end there will be these two horns described by Daniel, one in Daniel 7 and one in Daniel chapter 8. There's the little horn of the fourth beast out in the west. So we've got the Holy Roman Empire established, the European Union today, in the west with its blasphemous little horn, the, the papacy in Rome, with the little horn of the goat, you'll notice the little horn of the goat there has a, uh, has a sword there because the little horn of the goat, yes, it does have a religious impact. It has a, a religious influence in Constantinople, but it's the military power in the east. And Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, show, and you can show the parallel there between those two horns. Those two horns get on well together. They work together. M military and religious, just like it was historically and just as it will be in the end. And you'll see that really the religious centre in Rome and the military centre in Constantinople, and we're seeing Russia really start to circle this area in the military in the, in the eastern part of the old Roman Empire. Now, when you get to Daniel 11, Daniel 11 expands that concept and talks more about, Daniel 11 really is more about the east, it, it, it leaves aside the West, the West, which was dealt with in Daniel 7, and focuses on the East, an expansion of Daniel chapter 8, and describes it as a king of the North and king of the South. And so we expect from um, these prophecies and others to be this king of the North territory who will come against him, Constantinople, where we, we see a foreign power in there, which is, of course, Russia. Russia's in here already. But to the south will be Saudi Arabia and the, the Gulf states backed by Britain and the United States. But of course, these areas around here, Sudan and Libya, will be in Russian hands. Now, Libya, uh, Egypt's a bit different. Egypt was, of, of course, occupied by Britain back in the 1800s, and Britain used that, their, their presence in the Middle East to drive the Turks out of 
the land of Israel, Egypt falls into Russian hands. And I believe that uh, there's a lot of evidence to show that that is already starting to happen now and that Egypt is uh, by really uh, falling to Russia by stealth. That's another, sort of another story. And then that will result really then in the Battle of Armageddon because, of course, Russia will take Turkey from the north here. They'll take the King of the North Territory as, and, and Russia is right in there, allied with Iraq and Iran, will take Constantinople, will then come down here into, into Egypt and it, and it appears at this time that the, the uh, judgment seat will be there at, probably in this area to the south here, most likely. The saints will move north and, uh, and at the time when uh, tidings from the east will worry Russia when they're down here in Egypt and they'll move up into Jerusalem for the Battle of Armageddon. And here is just a little, uh, so it's a pictorial representation of that Battle of Armageddon. Good little summary. mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Thus saith the Lord God, Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old times by my servants, the prophets of Israel? summarizes what's what we're seeing the world preparing for now and that's really telling uh, headline there from a year ago at the end of last year that said that the Russian shadow falls over Syria as the Kurds open the door for Assad and we saw Trump just pulling American troops out of northern Syria and within the next day the Russians just moving in there's videos you can watch of Russians coming out of helicopters and just taking over the Russian bases gloating about the fact that the Americans have just walked away and Russia's as they moved in. And the Wall Street Journal described there that headline that said, Putin is the new king of Syria. The US withdrawal makes Russia the new arbiter 
of everyone's interest, including Israel's. And that really set the scene for what we saw this year. And I remember one of the most telling interviews I saw was with one of Trump's closest uh, and most um, fiercest uh, supporters in the Senate, uh, Senator Graham, in, in a state of absolute disbelief. He, he, was, he was almost crying, a tough military guy, almost crying that Trump could possibly pull these troops out of Syria and he just, he just couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it, he just said it was crazy. What, and of course the Russians moved in. And so now Russian, Russia's moving into the East Mediterranean in, 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 in force. Large number of Russian warships deployed between Syria and Cyprus in September. Experts are seriously concerned about the presence of at least 15 Russian warships and submarines off the coast of Syria. The Russian naval build-up also comes at a time of increased tension between Turkey, Cyprus and Greece in the East Mediterranean, as the latter two countries have accused Ankara, that's the capital of Turkey, of encroaching on their territorial waters. Another headline in the Libyan news, it says the US has warned of a Russian build-up threatening the East Mediterranean and Europe via Libya. And it seems like it's just accelerated in the last few months. And you see, we're quoting from a wide range of news sites here, particularly news sites in the Middle East. Russia plans a naval base in Sudan. They're not just planning it, they've signed a deal to bring Russian warships into Sudan. Um, the capacity at the, to start with will be capped at 300 military and civilian personnel and four warships. But of course, that's how it was with, with Syria as well, and it rapidly increased. And Middle Eastern news there, that headline from uh, only a few weeks ago said, is Russia's naval base in Sudan a signal to Turkey and Biden? Moscow is set to create a strategic foothold in Africa along vital shipping routes. And that will bring Russian warships into that ocean off Sudan, which could go up through into the Red Sea and just onto the southern uh, borders of Israel. See, things are really moving quickly now. And of course, Russia and Turkey are fighting this proxy war in Libya. Russia supporting one group, Turkey supporting another group. And this here really summarises what's going on. The warlord's power is on the wane. Libya's Khalifa Haftar is in retreat after a series of military defeats. His rebel forces have lost significant territory in recent weeks. This has been the story of Libya for nearly a decade. Near-constant fighting has devastated the North African nation. As if that weren't enough, the conflict is at risk of turning into a proxy war as several world powers are supporting opposing sides. Two of those powers are France and Turkey. Turkey backs the UN-recognized Government of National Accord or GNA, led by Prime Minister Fayyaz al-Suraj. He's based in Tripoli. And France is seen as supporting the warlord Khalifa Haftar. He controls the rival parliament known as the House of Representatives, which sits in the eastern city of Tobruk. Haftar is also backed by Egypt, the United Arab Emirates and Russian mercenaries. Since April last year, he's been trying to capture Tripoli but Turkish military power has helped to turn the tide against him. Not everyone's pleased with the result. On the face of it, France and Turkey are on the same side. They're both members of the NATO military alliance. But recently, that friendship has become strained. Last month, Paris accused Turkey's navy of failing to submit to an inspection by a French warship in the Mediterranean. France said it suspected a Turkish vessel of smuggling weapons into Libya violating a UN arms embargo. But Ankara has rejected the allegations. Macron ve Macron'un yönettiği veya yönetemediği şu anda Fransa. France is in Libya now only for its own interests and ambitions, with a destructive understanding as it destabilized all of Africa in the past with a colonial approach and bombed and left Libya in 2011. Therefore, the attitude and policies of France, and especially Macron, must be questioned and criticized. First of all, they should be honest and transparent. Then they criticize Turkey. Macron has seen that attacking Turkey 
does not work in terms of domestic policy. Turkey and Libya agreed to a security deal in November, allowing Ankara to supply the GNA with weapons. Paris insists it's neutral in the conflict and supports peace. But there's evidence of French support for the warlord Haftar, dating back at least five years. Anti-tank missiles bought by France from the United States have been found in the hands of Haftar's fighters. And in 2016, a French military helicopter was shot down in Libya, killing three French soldiers. So why is France supporting a warlord? It seems Macron is eager to secure lucrative energy deals with Libya. The country has the largest oil reserves in Africa, around 48 billion barrels. And at the moment, that oil is controlled by Haftar and his militias. So how far is Macron willing to go to get that oil? And is he willing to jeopardize relations with a NATO ally? Haider Abbasi, Straight Talk. Since that, since that video, um, the relationship between France and Turkey have gone dramatically downhill. Uh, there's been terrorist attacks in, uh, in France that have made that even worse. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's amazing to see that France and Russia are both backing the warlord Haftar in Libya against the Turks. But when they said uh, in that earlier video that said that um, Haftar is in retreat, it's because uh, Haftar had great successes the year before because Russia was supporting him. But Turkey sent in their drones against Russian forces and that is what's here described as a game changer. Have a look at this. Whether it be in the fight against Syrian regime forces in Idlib or against PKK terrorism or more recently against Libyan warlord Khalifa Haftar's failed advances towards Tripoli, there is one common denominator that has brought success and aerial superiority to Turkish forces and that is Turkey's military drones. Haftar is supported by Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, Russia and France. He controls the east of Libya centered around the city of Benghazi. Since April 2019, he has launched a campaign to sweep the country by taking control of its central and western territories. However, the UN-recognized government of Libya, the Government of National Accord, which is backed by Turkey, Italy and Qatar, has managed to make decisive victories against Haftar's forces, moving them out of strategic territories. Speaking to TRT World, Salah Bakush, a Libyan political analyst and former advisor to the High Council of the Libyan State, said, quote, You have to understand the Libyan geography. Libya is a vast country with open spaces and semi-desert areas, even in coastal areas where no one basically can hide troop movements. In this case, you need very much air cover. If you do not have air cover, you will be easily hit by the opposing side. And that's what happened to us until we got the Turkish drones. Drones made an arrival in the Libyan conflict at the end of 2019 and Turkish military personnel trained Libyan operators to fly them until the beginning of 2020. The drones have targeted Haftar's military bases, supply lines, and ultimately led to Haftar giving up key cities between Tripoli and the Tunisian border, as well as the expulsion of LNA militants from Al Wataya airbase, the largest airbase across Western Libya, which led to the GNA interior minister saying, quote, the Turks saved us just in time. Turkish drones have also proven to be lethal and highly effective in the Syrian conflict. Turkish drones were used for support in Operation Spring Shield, launched in retaliation against the Syrian regime's airstrike that killed 33 Turkish soldiers on February 27th this year, thwarting Bashar al-Assad's Idlib plans. A report by the Middle East Institute outlines that the Syrian regime suffered heavy losses, including, quote, 3,000 soldiers, 151 tanks, eight helicopters, three drones, three fighter jets, around 100 armored military vehicles and trucks, eight aerial defense systems, 86 cannons and howitzers, ammunition trucks and dumps, and one headquarters among other military equipment and facilities. So there you go, you can see that it's, it's not like Russia is being seen by people as, as the aggressor, they're seeing Turkey as the aggressor against Russia. And this is probably one of my favorite headlines of the year. It was when the uh, social unrest was going on in America and uh, the mobs were looting shops this headline was actually a headline in a number of news uh, uh, sites. It says that Russia and Turkey just escalated a war while you weren't watching. The two are battling over power and influence in the Middle East with Syrians and Libyans caught in the crossfire. So they're, they're, they're fighting now in various flashpoints over who will be the big dog in the Middle East. The two rivals have been at this game for a couple of centuries, but it just got a lot more serious this week when Russia introduced jet fighters into the Libyan civil war. 
That, this is back in May. And that's in response to the drones coming in against Russian-backed forces. And there's one headline there that says, the war in Libya, Russia's time is approaching. They can see that this is where Russia is preparing to take the Middle East. Turkey's Erdogan's been humiliating Putin all year. This is how he did it. And as we know, Putin doesn't like to be humiliated without uh, fixing that situation. US says, the BBC says, US says Russia sent jets to Libyan mercenaries. Turkey and Russia, a headline says, Turkey and Russia are at war and Libya's the loser. You see where things are going. And this is Russia, described here as Russia's endgame in Libya. Since the removal of Muammar Gaddafi in 2011, two main competing powers have emerged in Libya. In Tripoli is the internationally recognised and UN-backed Government of National Accord, or GNA, led by Prime Minister Fayyaz al-Siraj. And in the eastern city of Tobruk is the House of Representatives. It's controlled by the warlord Khalifa Haftar, who leads the LNA militia. There are powerful nations that are backing opposing sides in the war. Let's take a look at Russia. Moscow supports Haftar and has supplied him with fighter jets and mercenaries. But Haftar's attempt to capture Tripoli failed and he's lost territory to the GNA. The Kremlin is now pushing for an end to the fighting. I don't see any немедленного прекращения огня и решения всех остальных вопросов на основе переговорного процесса в русле тех пониманий, которые закреплены в декларации Берлинской конференции. But is Moscow playing a double game in Libya? On one hand, it's urging diplomacy, but at the same time, it's sending planes and fighters to Haftar. According to Oxford researcher Samuel Romani, arms and mercenaries are being used to strengthen Haftar's bargaining power in future negotiations. And what are Russia's interests in Libya? US military officials believe the Kremlin is eyeing lucrative energy deals in eastern Libya. They also say Russia wants to expand its political and military reach in the Mediterranean. But with Haftar humiliated, how far is Russia willing to go to secure those interests? equipment into the country. And so that headline there says that Vladimir Putin is encircling Europe. Russia's in interventions in these regions have imparted a geopolitical cohesion to what previously had been separate zones of instability. Russia is now a central player along the length of this volatile frontier. European security is increasingly at the mercy of Russia. This is an enormous success for Moscow. And the Libyan Mufti, that's religious leader, calls for resisting the Russian invasion of Libya. And just as a side point, there was this fascinating little, there's been a few of these discoveries recently where Egypt has reported finding huge amounts of gold deposits in the eastern desert. Now that's fascinating because of that chapter we read tonight in Daniel chapter 11. It says that when, when Gog comes in, the king of the north comes in to Egypt He'll stretch forth his hand upon the countries and the land of Egypt will not escape, but he shall have power over the treasures of gold, silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And in recent years, there's been big um, discoveries of gold under the ground, but they haven't got the gold out because it costs a lot of money to do it and there's a lot of instability. But Russia's got its eyes on gold. Russia's buying up massive amounts of gold, no doubt as a uh, precaution against a future financial crisis. And really, I suppose, in finishing now, we want to look at uh, really the fact that it's not just Russia intentions with Turkey, but also Greece. Now, that's important because Greece is a part of the latter-day um, latter Russian power because we know Daniel's fourth beast has brass claws. We know that the, the, it's the Greco-Roman Empire, the eastern part of the, the empire, that is the Greek Orthodox Church prominent. And of all things, this year, it was not just military uh, 
incursions that the Turks made against Russia. It's also religious. And this uh, site there of the, uh, the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, or, or as it's called Istanbul today, in the middle of all this crisis in, in, in um, Libya with the military fight between Turkey and Russia, Turkey have declared this a mosque. Now this is a highly sensitive issue, which this, this guy here explains now about the fact that Russia is very upset about this. The latest on this, uh, France 24's Nick Holdworth is standing by in uh, Moscow. Nick, why such a strong reaction by uh, Russia's Orthodox Church then? Uh, this uh, cathedral turned museum, now turned mosque, has always been uh, at the very heart of uh, Eastern Christianity. Um, it, it's revered as the site of the um, founding, if you like, of Eastern Christianity uh, in Constantinople, as Istanbul was called uh, back in those uh, days uh, at the end of the Roman Empire. And therefore, it, it holds a particular uh, special place in the hearts of uh, the Russian Orthodox community. And the Patriarch Kirill spoke about this earlier this week in very, very strong terms, saying that um, uh, converting it to a mosque would be an attack on all of Christian civilization. It would cause deep pain to the Russian people. And he reminded uh, the nation and the world that um, relations between Russia and Turkey are developing dynamically, he said. Um, so, I mean, all of that is true. I mean, relations between Russia and Turkey, sometimes strained, sometimes positive, are dynamic. So, uh, to the Eastern Church, this is at the very heart of their belief. This is where very early... Uh there you see that there's now conflict on a religious scale, not just military. And there was, of course, a response to this. And uh, Russian politician Vladimir Zirinovsky, of course, he was the guy that wrote that book that called The Last Leap South. He's still the leader of the Liberal Democratic Party in Russia. He's the vice president of the Russian parliament. He said in a, uh, uh, there is the headline says, um, the Turks will be eating kebabs in Ankara and we will create a greater Greece. And he says that Istanbul will become Constantinople again. He says, we warn the Turks to withdraw their forces from Azerbaijan and Syria. So you see the conflict. They're wanting to overthrow Istanbul and make it Constantinople again. And the Russian, uh, even the Russian foreign ministry, when all this was happening, and of course this is in the Greek media, you read a lot of this in the Greek media, they've reminded Turkey about what happened 200 years ago when Russia sunk the Ottoman fleet in Greece. And saying to the Turks, you need to watch out because we're going to do it again. And Russia has military inter militarily also intervened in the Armenian-Azerbaijan war. And this is really a continuation of the same story. This war between Armenia and Azerbaijan that broke out, broke up, uh, broke out in August. Of course, Armenians, mostly Christians, backed by Russia. Azerbaijan, mostly Shia Islam, backed by Turkey. Both of them are on opposite sides of the conflict, just like they are in Libya. And uh, there's also been a, a conflict, which we haven't had time to look at tonight, conflict between Greece and Turkey and their ships in the eastern Mediterranean. And I suppose in summary, we can say that we expect to see Russia soon re-establish the Eastern Roman Empire centred in Istanbul just prior to Armageddon as that little horn of the goat power. So you can see how the alignments everywhere, whether it be Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, Libya... Syria, it's all fitting into place. And really, uh, one of our last little video clips is this, which really explains what's going on in Armenia and Azerbaijan way better than what I can. Let's talk about a mountain territory that people are killing each other over. It's called Nagorno-Karabakh, and the fight's between Armenia and Azerbaijan. A flare-up of one of the world's oldest conflicts is raising fears of all-out war. Soldiers and civilians are being killed. Life has moved underground in Stepanaket. Once the machine of war has started, it gets incredibly dangerous. These two sides have very long-range weapons. So why are they fighting? How long has it been going on for? And why are countries like Turkey involved?
The first shots were fired in July before all out war broke out at the end of September. It's been the worst fighting there in 25 years, but the grievances go back generations. At the heart of the dispute is a region called Nagorno-Karabakh. And here it is in a crowded neighborhood known as the South Caucasus. Nagorno-Karabakh lies entirely within Azerbaijan's borders. It's internationally recognized as being part of the country, full stop. Here's the thing, it's controlled by ethnic Armenians, backed by Armenia. And surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh are lands that Armenia controls. The UN calls it an occupation. Then you've got all the big neighbors, like Iran, which borders both. Turkey, it's long been an ally of Azerbaijan. And then there's Russia. It supplies weapons to both Armenia and Azerbaijan. We'll get into all the geopolitics later. But first, here's what Nagorno-Karabakh looks like. It makes up 5% of Azeri territory, but almost twice that much land around it is controlled by Armenian forces. About 150,000 people live here. It holds its own elections and governs itself. But right now, it's a war zone. Many people are living in their basements because of the shelling, and local officials say half the people who live there have been forced to leave. The thing about this region is that it's been fought over for a long time. Iran had control in the mid-18th century, then the Russians took over, the British and the Ottomans were in there too. But a key date in all of this is 1920. That's when Armenia and Azerbaijan went to war over Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan, backed by Russia, got control. A year later, it was promised to the Armenians, but Stalin turned around and made sure Azerbaijan held onto it. By 1988, the Soviet Union was crumbling, and the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh took advantage of the power vacuum and voted to join Armenia. So when the Soviet Union finally fell apart in 1991, so did whatever was left of peace in the South Caucasus. What the collapse of the Soviet Union did was then to militarize this conflict. Uh, both sides suddenly got much bigger weapons. 1992 was when the fighting really intensified, right after Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh declared independence. Both sides accuse each other of atrocities. Tens of thousands of local Azeris and Armenians were killed. A million people had to leave their homes. In the end, the Armenians pushed Azerbaijan's forces out of Nagorno-Karabakh, seized territories around it, and it all finally ended in a ceasefire in 1994. That ceasefire has been ignored by both Armenia and Azerbaijan over the years. And the sense of injustice over what happened in that war, the killings and mass displacement, hasn't gone away. This conflict has always been kind of put on the back burner. There's always the danger of some terrible incident causing a, a new escalation, in which case things could get totally out of control given the huge amount of, of weaponry we have on both sides. And now, both sides are tapping into that anger. It's full-scale war all over again. Trenches, tanks, air attacks. Air raid sirens wailed across this city as a barrage of rockets and mortars rained down. Azeri forces have been attacking Nagorno-Karabakh's main city, Stepanakert. Armenian men there have been signing up to fight back. <laughs> Exact numbers are next to impossible to come by, but soldiers and civilians on both sides have been killed. Armenian forces have been attacking Azerbaijan too. The border city of Ganja has been among the hardest hit. There's been numerous ceasefires. Russia's only recently shot down nine Turkish drones, and it's really blowing up. And they've, I mean, they've had it seems like as soon as they have a ceasefire, then within a day or two, there's another war breaking out. So I think we can see really across the board that um, everything is converging in the same direction. It's Russia versus Turkey, Russia with Greece and France on its side, and the Turks very aggressive. And, and we know the final picture from the scripture, don't we? And the final picture will end with God's kingdom on earth. What a glorious picture this is compared to what's going on today. It shall come to pass in the last days 
that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it will be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Israel, the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And so, brothers and sisters, what a wonderful hope that is. It's a hope that we can grasp hold of, that is a real, tangible hope that we can see is going to happen. And whatever happens in the, in the weeks and the months ahead, we can see that things are going in the direction of God's kingdom on earth being established and Christ returning. Thanks.